We're going to be continuing our book of uh, Samuel, preaching through the book of Samuel Sunday mornings here. Today we're doing things a little bit differently. If you're visiting, as Aaron mentioned earlier, if you are a guest, um, normally we would take an extended time of worship and, and the preaching. Um, we're going to curtail things by 1130 um, or so, or maybe a couple minutes before that. So if you're visiting with us, um, you can feel free to go after that point in time. Um, we're going to, for everyone else here, we would ask that you can stay. Um, if you are a regular attendee here, if you are a member of the church, um, we would love for you to stay here just to see um, what we do with children's ministry because it affects all of us and all of the members in the church have an opportunity to serve in children's ministry and it affects really the safety and well-being of our entire congregation. So um, we, we only do this probably once a year or so. We're going to take some time to walk through um, everything to do with what we call Grace Kids, which is our children's ministry. So if you are a member here, we would love you to stay. Um, If you're visiting, um, you can stay as well, but feel free to to leave after we dismiss at 1130. Um, For everybody else, uh, everybody in children's ministry is planning to keep watching your kids so you can be here undistracted. So turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 12, I mean, sorry, chapter 13. It's not a repeat of last week. Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 13, we'll be reading the entire chapter together today. This is God's holy, inspired word. Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul and Michmash in the hill country of Bethel. And a thousand were with Jonathan and Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba. And the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped at Michmash and to the east of Beth-Avon. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs, and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. He waited seven days, a time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal. And the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me, and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come to me within the days that were appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offerings. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. 
The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up to get from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, and the people who were present with him stayed in Geba of Benjamin, but the Philistines encamped at Michmash. And raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned towards Ophrah, the land of Sheol. The other company turned towards Beth Horon. Another company turned towards the border that looks down on the valley of Zeboim towards the wilderness. Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make swords for themselves or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks, and a third of a shekel for sharpening the axes and setting the goads. So on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan. But Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, God. Thank you for your history like this that tells us of what it looks like to follow you. God, thank you for passages like this that, that even warn of what it looks like in ways we should not follow. God, I pray that you would speak to us through your word this morning, that we would see the example of Saul and the Israelites. God, I, I pray it would sober us, Lord, but I pray it would turn us to hope in you. Father, I pray that you would be with me as I preach that you would be with everyone who hears, that you would make your words alive again today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, when we last left Saul and Samuel in chapter 12 of 1 Samuel, there was a tentatively hopeful ending. At the end of chapter 12, Samuel had left the Israelites with the encouragement to not be afraid. He says, don't be afraid. God won't abandon his people. He won't forsake his people if Even though you've asked for a king for yourselves, yes, you've done that, you've sinned, but if you obey God from the heart, things will go well with you. If you follow the Lord, if even now, after all of your sin and seeking your own king, if you obey the Lord with all your heart, it will go well. And then chapter 12, it ends with this warning and also an exhortation. The end of chapter 12 in verse 24, it says, only fear the Lord, And that's kind of a guiding principle through this whole passage in chapter 13. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider, last week we looked at, this is the means by which we fear him and serve him faithfully. It says, for consider all or all the wonderful things or the great things that he has done for you. And then the warning, but if you still do wickedly, you should be swept away, both you and your king. So chapter 13 here follows right on the heels of chapter 12's exhortation and saying, even though you've sinned, don't be afraid. Still follow God with all your heart. Remember, consider the great things that God has done for you. Follow him faithfully. And then the warning, but if you still do wickedly, if you, if you do not fear the Lord, then you should be swept away, both you and your king. 
And so right on the heels of that, we can see that in chapter 13, it's really, it plays out that warning of chapter 12, and we see the consequences of not fearing the Lord, which is really the kind of theme of chapter 13, not fearing the Lord. It's really the main idea of the passage that we want to get across this morning is not fearing the Lord. It leads to disobedience and hopelessness. It's a pretty bleak chapter, isn't it? There's a lot of things, bad things that happen. The very end, the, the people are left kind of destitute. They're hiding in rocks and in caves. They don't even have any weapons. They have to go and pay the Philistines to, to sharpen their plowshares and their, their picks, their, their mattocks. It's hopeless, and the reason why it's hopeless, it's, it's a playing out of chapter 12, the end of chapter 12, the warning. Fear the Lord. Serve him faithfully with your heart. Consider what great things he's done to you. That's the means by which we fear God and serve him. And then the counter of that is, but if you still do wickedly, that is, if you disobey, if you don't fear the Lord, you'll be swept away. And what we're seeing here is the sweeping away of Israel's first king. This not fearing of the Lord, it it leads to disobedience and hopelessness. In John Bunyan's story, The Pilgrim's Progress, I, and by the way, I hope everyone here has read The Pilgrim's Progress. If you have not yet read it, I'd encourage you to do that. Even though it's an old book, it's still one of the most helpful books in your Christian walk for understanding what does it look like to walk through life? What kind of things will we encounter? And, and, as, and as Christian, the main character in The Pilgrim's Progress is he is kind of walking through this journey from the city of destruction to the city of the celestial city. He encounters all kinds of problems and he's coming up this mountain. He's, he's weary and he's tired and, and he sees this really beautiful palace, this rest area, this, this, stop, this place that he can stop and rest that the Lord had built for the safety and well-being and refreshment of the pilgrims. And just as he gets close enough to, to call out to the porter who, who kind of oversees that lodge, the, 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 the place is called Beautiful, he sees that there's two lions there. And these lions are fierce and they are snarling and they're growling and they're huge and they're intimidating. And so Christian is tempted to, to turn and run away. He thinks there is death on the path here. I, I'm, I'm in danger, I'm in trouble, and so I'm gonna run away. And so he gets ready to turn and run away. But the porter, he calls out to him. The porter's name is Watchful and he calls out to him and he says, hey, wait a minute, you, you, you're not seeing things rightly. You're focusing on the lions here. The, the, the king has put these lions here as a trial of your faith. But you're not meant to look at the lions. You're not meant to see them. Instead, you're meant to put faith in the Lord who built the place and to go in the center of the path and you'll be safe and you'll find rest. And so Christian, he ignores those growling, snarling lions that he sees and he he goes straight in the path and he goes to the place called Beautiful and he finds rest and rest and refreshment and security. The porter of the lodge pointed him to have faith. Samuel kind of acts like a porter, really, in, in chapter 12 and chapter 13. He is pointing Saul in chapter 12 and pointing the people to have faith in God and to, to fear the Lord. Don't fear circumstances. Don't fear other things, but fear the Lord. Obey his voice. And yet Saul here and the people, they're, they're becoming distracted. They're looking at circumstances and things around them. Instead of listening to the word of the porter to Samuel, 
Saul, in this passage, he gives in to fear. And he doesn't find rest. And the people don't find rest. And the people run away scared. This accounts a huge contrast to chapter 11 where Saul was empowered by the Spirit of God and when he was empowered by the Spirit of God and he obeyed God's voice, he goes and he, he conquers the Ammonites. But now we don't see any looking to God. We don't see any looking to the Spirit. We don't see boldness from Saul. And in fact, we see this contrast we're going to see set up in a moment between Saul and his son Jonathan outshines him and we see fear and self-sufficiency that leads to disobedience and judgment and the first picture we're going to see is this it's the reverse really of the fear of the lord we see looking at circumstances and it causes doubt and fear that's the first scene we'll kind of see is that looking at circumstances causes doubt and fear the very beginning of the passage says that Saul lived for one year and then became king, and when he reigned for two years over Israel. And if you've read other versions, maybe this morning you have an NIV with you or an older ESV, um, scholars have grappled with what does that mean? Saul reigned for, became king when he was one year, then he began to reign after two years. And well, no, we, we know from Scripture that Saul actually reigned about 40 years, but how do you reconcile that with this passage? And then what does it mean that he became king after one year? Well, Scholars have tried to figure out, what does this really mean? And I think what it means is that a a year after our last picture that we saw Saul, we have now, he's been reigning for a year. And then he effectively only reigns two more years before he is deposed as king, even though his rule continues for 40 years. In chapter 15, we'll see that Saul's reign effectively comes to an end, even though he continued to be king. This kind of was the death knell, the beginning of the death knell for his reign. And so it begins in an ominous place. After only a year of Saul reigning, he only has two years where he's really going to function as a king. And this is the beginning of that downward spiral. The people had chosen Saul in fulfillment of Samuel's warning, Saul now has chosen men to serve as a standing guard. If you remember, um, Samuel had warned the people, he says, if you appoint a king, this kind of king will take and take and take. And so we see the Saul, the very beginning, he's doing that. He's taking 3,000 men from amongst the Israelites. They appointed a standing army. And Saul takes 2,000 of these men to himself. And his son Jonathan takes 1,000 men. And they have this standing army. And he musters the people and he sends everybody else home. But the meanwhile, there was this garrison of the Philistines about two miles northeast of where Jonathan's troops were and about two miles south of where Saul's troops were. Kind of right in the middle between where it describes Saul's troops and Jonathan's troops was this garrison, this stronghold of the Philistines. And most likely, their presence so close, it probably bothered Jonathan. If, if you've ever read along in the book of Samuel, you can see that Jonathan is kind of this man of action, He's a bold man. Next week we'll see in chapter 14, Jonathan is not easily intimidated, but Saul is. And this this contrast is set up for us to see that Saul is, is is one who lives in fear. His son is bold. Saul is not. Saul is looking at the circumstances, and he has 2,000 men, and he doesn't attack this garrison. And yet, Jonathan, with only 1,000 men, 
attacks this garrison of the Philistines. And he attacks this garrison of the Philistines and he wipes them out. The problem is that was probably the seat of the governor of the Philistines. And so the Philistines find out, and the scripture tells us that they became a stench to the Philistines. They became a stench to the Philistines. So he, Saul finds out about this, and he, he blows the trumpet. Now, this might be Saul being kind of boastful, taking credit for it, but ultimately he was responsible even for Jonathan's victory. And so Saul, though, he realizes that they had become a stench to the Philistines, and he acts in fear. This, this blowing of the trumpet, he realizes, oh no, the Philistines are going to attack. And so he calls this trumpet makes his trumpet blast go out as a warning to all the people and he musters them to battle because he knew they're going to retaliate. And he says, let all the Hebrews be aware. And so the Israelite army gathers together with Saul at Gilgal close to the border of the Jordan. And then look down your Bible in verses 5 to 8. The Philistines muster their army in response and it's a really big response. Can you imagine the response that they must have seen? So Saul, he blows the trumpet, all of Israel comes, all the men, we're not sure how many men gather, but it was way more than 3,000 men. The army of Israel is gathered, and then when they're gathered, the Philistines show up in force. They show up, it says, with 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen, and then they show up with a multitude of the army so great that it was like, it was like the sand on the seashore. I remember watching a, a movie a few years back. It was called The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers. And there's this battle scene where they're, they're in this stronghold. And all of a sudden, the out of nowhere floods this mighty army of orcs. And they just kind of pepper the whole ground. And it looks like ants are swarming everywhere. And it's overwhelming. And fear grips the, grips the place where they're staying. I, I can only imagine Saul... And Jonathan and all the men of Israel, they're not in a garrison. They're, they're not in a stronghold. They're not in a city. They're not behind walls. And they're seeing these Philistines have shown up. And they're like sand of the seashore. It kind of reminds you of another time when the Israelites faced some really daunting odds, doesn't it? Do you remember when that might have been? Way back when Israel first was delivered, when they didn't have an army really, when they didn't have any weapons of any kind, when Israel was first delivered from Egypt and they were routed, they were kind of rushed on the way, they had no time to prepare, they're up against the wall of the Red Sea and then they turn around and behind them is the entire army of Egypt. It was the world's largest army at the time. The nation of Israel looked and they saw these insurmountable odds and circumstances and the people panicked, but what did Moses do? Moses, he trusts in God And God delivered mightily. But that's not what we see here. What we see here instead is both the people and their leader looking to circumstances. We see the people are more aware of everything around them. They're more aware of of the odds against them than they are aware of the God who created them all. And so they panic. Circumstances don't look good and the overwhelmingly large force of the Philistines, it says the people were hard-pressed and it struck fear into them. This was not a faith-building moment. Now, Maybe you can relate. Maybe you've had circumstances that just seem overwhelming to you. 
Maybe you've had circumstances just seem like, this is way too much for me. This is just way too much. I can't handle this. I give up. This is too much to endure. You ever felt like that before? We need to take a lesson and stop and see what, what, what did they do? They, they looked at the circumstances. They looked at everything they saw them. They didn't look to God. That's what's missing here in the response. They don't turn to God. Like in chapter 11, they turn to God and they cry out to him and God delivers them. Here, they look at the circumstances and what, does it ha- what happens? It causes massive doubt and fear. Causes massive doubt and fear. That's what, that's what not fearing the Lord does. It, it leads to disobedience. It leads to hopelessness. It leads to fear. Looking at circumstances, it causes doubt and fear for us. Instead of facing their enemy, it tells us what they did. It says they ran, they hid themselves in caves, in holes, in rocks, in tombs, and cisterns. Cisterns is a place where they would store their water. You wouldn't normally find a person in there. And Saul is no better. He doesn't lead them in trusting God. He doesn't rally them to trust in God despite what they see. Instead, they all scatter. And we don't see Saul crying out to God. We don't see him having faith in God. It reminds me of a few years back, 10 or 12 years ago or so, right after the Iraqi war in 2003. The, the troops, the, the combined troops had, had defeated the Iraqi army and Saddam Hussein had gone running, and they searched for a while to no avail, and they looked and looked. They sent actually 600 people looking for him, 600 troops going out and looking for him, and they, they looked under all kinds of places, in tombs and in holes and all kinds of places. And finally, they found Saddam Hussein. He was actually underground in what they call a spider hole. It's not a place where spiders actually hide, but it's reminiscent of a trap door. And so he was six feet underground, covered with his trap door, over with rocks and bricks and mud. He was hiding fearfully. And that's a very common response even today in that area. They completely abandoned their lands. They went across the Jordan to be with the tribes of, of Gad and Gilead, even though it meant that the Philistines would have taken over their lands. They abandoned all hope. And where did it start? It started with looking at their circumstances, looking at the things around them, looking at what they could see instead of doing what Samuel had encouraged them to do, to consider the great things that God had done. The question for you and I is, what are we looking at right now? What are we looking at today in our lives? What circumstances are blinding our eyes to the reality of the great things that God has done? How about you? Are you considering what great things God has done for you? Are you forgetting not all of his benefits? Or are you looking to your circumstances and forgetting God? It's really easy to do. What circumstances are you fearing right now? What circumstances are you more aware of and where are you less aware of God? Think about that for a moment because this is an encouragement for us to go back and apply Samuel's words when he, tell, he told them to, to consider all of the great things that God has done for them. Well, somehow Saul and the men with him, to their credit, they surprisingly stay at Gilgal. They follow him. It says they follow him trembling. 
That's a picture of this, these kind of men fearfully following Saul. We're still with you, but we're really scared. And they're fearful and they're trembling. But they're not trembling at God, they're trembling at their circumstances. Samuel, he had appointed that Saul should wait for him for seven days at Gilgal. So we see here that Saul, he's waiting. He waits for seven days at Gilgal. But on the seventh day, the people are getting nervous. People are leaving him in droves. You know, he started out with 3,000 men and, and, and he mustered the whole army of Israel, but people are just flocking away from Saul. They're just, they're just going away because they see their circumstances. They see faithless leader. They don't see any faith in Saul. And their, their departure was not a sign of trusting in God. It was a sign they're looking around and they forgot that God was on their side. They were scattering, and, and Saul, he starts to panic. He tells us that really himself in a few moments in the verses, and he starts to panic, and he thinks, oh my gosh, Samuel's not here. It's the seventh day. People are deserting me. Everybody's leaving. Oh no, what should I do? And he thought his strength lay in numbers of people that were with him, so he becomes desperate. And so the second picture that we see, it's the reverse of fearing the Lord. It's really the reverse of fearing the Lord. It's, that, it's, it's this fearful self-sufficiency that results in disobedience. It's a a fearful self-sufficiency that results in disobedience. Whenever we become fearful, we're tempted to self-sufficiency. Whenever we lose sight of who God is and what God has done, of the great works that God has done, we'll become fearful. And when we allow fear like that, when we lose sight of the place of our faith, when we lose sight of our great God, We're tempted to look to other places for solutions. And the first place most of us are tempted is to become self-sufficient. And that kind of fearful self-sufficiency, it doesn't result in the fear of the Lord and obedience and following the Lord with all of our hearts. No, it results in disobedience. And that's what we see in Saul. We see that Saul is fearful. He becomes self-sufficient. And it results in his disobedience. Verse 9 tells us what Saul did. It says he calls for the burnt offerings and the peace offerings to be brought to him. Now, if you know anything about Israel's history, you know that the king's not supposed to do that. Or at least he's not supposed to do that without the prophet present. And also in their history, whenever a sacrificial offering was made before a war, it was only to be performed with a prophet present. And, and apparently here Samuel had given Saul a direct command to wait for seven days, and then Samuel would meet him, and then Samuel would bring the offering. But Saul panics. He becomes fearful. And he starts to try to figure things out on his own. You ever, you ever have those times in your life? When you start to look at circumstances around you, you become fearful, and you start to, oh man, oh gosh, I, I got to figure things out on my own. And you start to panic and you start to do all kinds of things to figure things out. But that's, that's not the way that we please the Lord. Self-sufficiency doesn't lead to the obedience of the Lord. It doesn't lead to a, a, a heart after God. It leads a heart away from God. Saul was fearful. And instead of looking to God, he looks to himself. He looks at his circumstances and he's desperate. And so he's like, I'm, I'm willing to make this offering even though I know that God's not really going to be pleased because this might fix things. And from the way it's written, it seems that it was a way for Saul to manipulate and gain the people's confidence. 
as if, as if the offering was meant as a show for the people more than the offering was made for God. Saul was taking worship to God and turning it into a performance to gain the approval of God's people. You ever, you ever do that? You ever turn, in, turn your performance from being an act of worship to God to instead be something that you're trying to get the confidence of other people? That's what Saul's doing here. He, he, turns, he turns worship, or what should be an act of offering and sacrifice and worship to God, he turns it into something really twisted, something that's meant to give him worship and give the people confidence in him instead of the people confidence in God. And he tries to use God like this talisman. And Saul had forgotten God. People had become bigger to him. And that's so often what happens when we begin to look at circumstances, we begin to see that we're failing, we're not doing well. People become bigger than God. Circumstances become bigger than God. And when people and circumstances become bigger than God, we're going to try to fix things on our own. We're not going to be looking to God to be our answer. Instead, we'll be self-sufficient, and that's what Saul is doing here. Saul forgot God, and as soon as, It's this awful thing that happens. As soon as he finishes offering the burnt offering, what happens? Samuel shows up, right? Samuel shows up. As soon as he finishes offering the burnt offering, look who walks up. It's Samuel. I can only imagine what Saul must have felt like. He must have known he was guilty, and so we kind of see the scene. He kind of overplays things. Oh, Samuel, so good to see you. Come here. Yeah, so great to see you. And he greets him, and he's... He's really joyful in his greeting. He goes out and he welcomes Samuel in like nothing's happened at all. I'm innocent here. Oh, Samuel, so good to see you. In his mind, he's probably thinking, oh, crap. (laughs) Samuel asks Saul, what have you done? He's he's clearly not amused. He's not pleased. It's it's the same phrase, this what have you done, that, that God used when he spoke to Cain after Cain had killed his brother Abel, it wasn't that God was confused or God didn't know. He was calling him to account and he says, Cain, what have you done? It's the same kind of language that God used when he's addressing Adam. It's the same kind of confrontational language. What have you done? Why did you not look to me? Why did you turn to self-sufficiency? Why were you fearful? Why did you not Wait for me. It's not as much a question as an accusation where it's plain that wrong's been done. The perpetrator's called to give an account. And instead of confessing his weakness and asking forgiveness, he, he blames shifts to Samuel and then the people. Isn't that the same pattern that Adam did? Isn't that the same pattern that we have that we're tempted to do? You know, I can remember so many times when, when I was a kid and I would do something wrong. Um, I don't know why, but I had this knack for getting caught. Um, I swear, whenever I would do something, as soon as I would turn around, there would be like my mom. And I'm like, oh my gosh. And, and I was always getting caught. I was the worst of all four of my, my, my parents' children. I was always, they would always get away with like murder, but I would get caught every time. And yet it was actually the kindness of God that I was caught. It was the mercy of God that I was caught because if I hadn't been caught, oh my goodness, if God had not arrested me, I would have gone so much further 
in the wrong direction. And so even now, as Samuel is confronting Saul, it's the mercy of God that Saul finishes sacrificing. Samuel shows up. It's the mercy of God. Samuel confronts him, but Saul misses it again. He tries to cover up. He tries to cover up his his sin. He tries to cover up his self-sufficiency. And isn't that what we do sometimes too? We try to pretend like we're not really guilty. You know, I kind of understand the excuses that Saul gives, don't you, right? The, the enemy was indeed big. The people were indeed deserting him, right? Samuel had not yet come to meet him as appointed. It looks like he came later in the day, but, but yeah, it was the seventh day so far and he had not shown up. The Philistines, they really were gathering to meet him and Saul had not sought the Lord's favor. All that was true. But the problem is Saul used what he saw to justify his unbelief, to justify his self-sufficiency, to justify his disobedience. He wasn't responding in faith and trusting in God and looking for him to deliver. And I was just thinking how often I have a tendency to do that as well. You know, have you, have you ever explained away why you sin? I do. You know, um, I got angry at my wife because she was being so unreasonable. No, that's, that's really not it. I get angry because I was wanting something from her that I wasn't getting. And I got angry in response. You know, maybe you've justified yourself to others or tried to justify yourself to God by explaining that, God, I was just weak. Couldn't help it. I was just tired. That's why I got angry. It was cranky. And I haven't eaten yet, God. And my blood sugar was low. You know, whatever you... I got a headache or you're grouchy, whatever you use as an excuse. You know, sometimes we say we deserve to sin, but you know, I've had such a cruddy day. I just need to unwind or I just need a break or, you know, I just, I just needed to get rid of the temptation so I gave in to it. And we fail like Saul to have faith in God and trust in him despite what we see or feel and instead we look at what we see and look at what we feel. Instead of considering, God, you're the one who's done great things for me. Lord, you're able to deliver me even from this temptation. Lord, you're able to deliver me from this circumstance, from this fear, from whatever surrounding. And we fail like Saul to have faith in God and trust in him despite what he's done. But Samuel and God would have none of it in Saul's case. Saul gives excuses, but he's not excused. So Samuel says to Saul in verse 13, he says, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. He says, For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. What was that command? It was to fear the Lord. The command was to consider what great things he had done so that he would serve him faithfully. And so God speaks a word of judgment through his prophet Samuel. Look down your Bibles in verse 13. We see there, Saul acts foolishly. And the connotation is that he was foolish because he was self-reliant. Saul thought more highly of what he thought was best than what God had commanded him. Saul didn't serve the Lord faithfully with his heart. He was motivated to manipulate the people to try to make things better on his own. He wasn't seeking God's word and God's will through Samuel. Instead, he was looking at how he could figure things out. 
He was self-sufficient, self-reliant, and led to disobedience. And here's the judgment. The king was not under the control of God's word as Samuel had ordered when he installed Saul. See, the king is to be submitted to God's word, and so are all the people. And if the king's not submitted to God's word, the people won't be submitted to God's word. And if the king and the people are not obedient to God's word, then all of you will be swept away. For all of God's people, that's the question, is what kind of king do we have? What kind of king do we need? If we have a king that's swept away, then we'll be swept away. So beginning in verse 14, looking at the end of the chapter, we see this third picture that's the result of fearing what we see. We see God's judgment. You know, the, the, the latter half of this chapter, it's not hopeful. It's not happy. It's awful. It's dismal. It's bleak. Isn't that what you're hoping to hear this morning? Nobody comes to church to hope to hear about God's judgment, about the bleakness and awfulness, awful results of not fearing God. But that's what we see here. We see that God judges. God judges this, this fearful, self-reliant disobedience. God judges their fearful, self-reliant disobedience. Look in verse 14. He says, But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. God had judged the intents of Saul's heart and Saul was not think, seeking the things of God. He didn't love what God loved. He wasn't after God's own heart. He wasn't desiring what God desired. He was desiring glory for himself, making his own kingdom. And we don't see in this verse a complete rejection of Saul. That hasn't happened yet. It's going to happen in in chapter 15, and even then God's merciful in delaying. But it does spell the end, of his, the end of his reign after him. It spells the end of his dynasty. You know, the same place where God had set Saul up and his dynasty up was in Gilgal. Now he's here and, and God is saying to Saul, no longer will you, your family reign. And he judges him in Gilgal. And God, he tells us, is seeking a man after his own heart. A man after his own heart. And then you've got to wonder, who is this man after God's own heart? Who is this prince who will be over God's people that God has commanded? It's the same thing that God desires today, isn't it? A man after God's own heart. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you say you love me, you're going to want to do what I want you to do. You're going to want to do my will. You're going to be after my own heart. If you really love me, you're going to do what I command you. Isaiah 66, in the Old Testament, God said, that, but this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Saul didn't keep God's commandments and he wasn't trembling at God's word. But that's the kind of man God's looking for. That's the kind of king, that's the kind of prince that God's people need. But most of the people, they desert now. Saul is not leading effectively and he's been judged. 
And Saul retreats from the lines. He, he drawn a Gilgal back to his hometown. He started with 2,000 men and Jonathan with 1,000. And now he's left in the place, look down your Bibles, where it says that 600 men are all that remain. He only has a small contingent left. But even then, all hope doesn't have to be lost. If you remember the story of Gideon, Gideon, God had him send away everybody but 300 men. And yet God used Gideon to, to stir up a nation and rout all the Midianites when 300 men threw the camp into confusion through God working and then all, all the people of Israel came after him and wiped out 120,000 Midianite soldiers. The situation is not more bleak than that. But they failed to consider what God has done. So Saul, here's how bleak things have gotten. In verse 16, he won't face them in battle. He's too fearful. And then what happens is, so since he won't face them on the field of battle, this was very common, they would have, the, the armies would line up on different ridges and then they would meet. But if one army failed to show, the other army would just go and send out raiding parties and would subdue the people. If they couldn't get justice in, on the field of battle, then they would, they would take their payments in the people. And they send three companies of raiding parties to pillage the country to the north, the west, the southeast. And then it tells us some more details that are even more bleak. The Philistines, they were the ones who really introduced the iron working into the land of Canaan. And as they went throughout, the raiding parties went throughout, they apparently confiscated or killed or captured all the blacksmiths in the entire land of Israel as well. And so you see this kind of strategic brain drain. And it's a big deal because back then they relied on blacksmiths for all of their weapons. It'd be like taking away um, all of our rocket scientists or all of our uh, our specialists in bomb making away from the United States and killing them all. The picture was bleak. The Israelites had no way to defend themselves. They didn't have anybody who was skilled in crafting weapons. There was nobody left. They couldn't even farm their land without having to stoop down and pay the Philistines. And the sum that they had to pay was exorbitant. It was half a shekel of silver just to sharpen their axe or their their. Uh, they're Maddox, which is like a, a point on one end and a flat hoe on the other end. They couldn't farm their land without having to pay them to sharpen their tools. They were bleak. Things were, were desperate. They had not feared God. They had given in to, to looking at the circumstances around them. They turned to self-sufficiency, and it led to all kinds of disobedience. And the disobedience led to God's judgment. And so the end of chapter 23, it ends with the main force of the Philistines kind of dominating and we're left with this scene where they go out to Michmash and they're going out, their attack, the war was imminent. They're dominating the land. They're, they're raiding wherever they please. They're sending the army into the Israelite territory and this is a dire warning. If you were an Israelite reading this originally, you would have seen this is a dire warning of the results of not fearing the Lord of not remembering what God's done and instead turning to self-sufficiency, looking at circumstances around you. This is what happens when the king turns away from God. This is what happens when there's a king in place who's not a man after God's own heart. But Here's the good news for Christians. We don't end with Samuel. 
We don't end with this passage. We're not going to end with that passage today. We're going, to, we're going to end with the place where we have hope, where the Israelites were looking for a king. That's the theme of really the whole book of Samuel is looking for this king, looking for somebody who would be faithful, looking for somebody who would bring them hope, looking for somebody who would be a man after God's own heart. And later on you think that just might be David, and he kind of was, but not really. But we know that the man after God's own heart was Jesus. Hebrews 1.9 tells us about the Son of God and says, But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. You see, God long ago appointed Jesus to be prince over the people. He appointed him to be our prince, the prince of all God's people, for all who would trust in him, for all who would say, I'm not going to trust in my ability to be a man after God's own heart because on my own I can't be. But I'm going to trust instead in the prince to lead us, the prince of peace, the prince who will be and has been and is the man after God's own heart, Jesus who perfectly fulfilled the Father's will in all of his ways. That's where our hope is. You see, because Jesus obeyed God perfectly and was fully accepted by God, Jesus leads us. He leads us into battle, always obedient. Jesus always looks to the Father. Jesus always leads us to look to God. And Jesus always faithfully trusted in God. You know, you, you might be finding yourself this morning that you're, you're convicted that you've been more aware of your circumstances, you've been more aware of things around you, that maybe you've been self-reliant, maybe you've been at the place where you've been in fear, and maybe you've experienced judgment of God. Here's the good news. God does judge disobedience, but he's judged all of our disobedience for all those who trust in Jesus Christ. He's already judged all of that disobedience in Jesus Christ. And now God looks on us as if we have completely, faithfully, always feared him, always obeyed. That's our hope. It's a sobering hope, but that's our hope, that we have a king who has never gone astray, who has never given into fear. We have a king who's faithful in all his ways, who's a man after God's own heart. And we can hope and trust in him. Amen? Well, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for a warning passage like this, Lord, that turns us away from looking to ourselves for hope. And God looks to you and cries out desperately to you, God, to deliver. Thank you, God, that you are a God who who desires desires to deliver your people. Thank you, God, that it goes well with us because, Jesus, you faithfully and continually and always obeyed. God, when we fail to fear you, thank you, Jesus, that you have feared God in our place. And so, God, we trust in you and we look to you in hope. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.